Chapter 3 Tommy and Tuppence compare notes. You look tired, Tuppence, said Tommy, as at the close of dinner they went into the sitting room, and Tuppence dropped into a chair, uttering several large sighs, followed by a yawn. Tired? I'm dead beat, said Tuppence. What have you been doing? Not things in the garden, I hope. Oh, I've not been overworking myself physically, said Tuppence coldly. I've been doing like you, mental research. Also very exhausting, I agree, said Tommy. Where particularly? You didn't get an awful lot out of Mrs. Griffin the day before yesterday, did you? What about the old people's home you went to? Well, I did get a good deal, I think. I didn't get much out of the first recommendation. At least I suppose I did, in a way. Opening her handbag, she tugged at a notebook of rather tiresome size and finally got it out. I made various notes each time about things. I took some of the China menus along, for one thing. Oh, and what did that produce? Well, it's not names that I write down so much as the things they say to me and tell me. And they were very thrilled at that China menu, because it seemed it was one particular dinner that everyone had enjoyed very much. They had had a wonderful meal. They hadn't had anything like it before, and apparently they had lobster salad for the first time. They'd heard of it being served after the joint in the richest and most fashionable houses, but it hadn't come their way. Oh, said Tommy. That wasn't very helpful. Well, yes, it was in a way, because they said they'd always remember that evening. So I said, why would they always remember that evening? And they said it was because of the census. What? A census? Yes, you know what a census is, surely, Tommy. Why, they had one only last year, or was it the year before last? You know, having to say, or, or making everyone sign, or enter particulars. Everyone who slept under your roof on a certain night, you know the sort of thing. On the night of November the 15th, who did you have sleeping under your roof? And you have to put it down, or they have to sign their names. I forget which. Anyway, they were having a census that day, and so everyone had to say who was under their roof. And of course a lot of people were at the party, and they talked about it. They said it was very unfair, and a very stupid thing to have, and that anyway they thought it was really a most disgraceful thing to go on having nowadays, because you had to say if you had children, and if you were married, or if you were not married but did have children, things like that. You had to put down a lot of very difficult particulars, and you didn't think it was nice. Not nowadays. So they were very upset about it. Well, the census might come in useful, if you've got the exact date of it, said Tommy. Would you mean you could check up about the census? Oh, yes. If one knows the right people, I think one could check up fairly easily. And they remembered Mary Jordan being talked about. Everyone said what a nice girl she had seemed, and how fond everyone was of her. And they would never have believed, you know how people say these things. Then they said, well, she was half German, so perhaps people ought to have been more careful in engaging her. Tuppence put down her empty coffee cup and settled back in her chair. Anything hopeful? said Tommy. Well, no, not really, said Tuppence. But it might be. Anyway, the old people talked about it and knew about it. Most of them had heard it from their elderly relations or something. Stories of where they had put things or found things. There was some story about a will that was hidden in a Chinese vase, something about Oxford and Cambridge, though I don't see how anyone would know about things being hidden in Oxford or Cambridge. It seems very unlikely. Or perhaps someone had a nephew undergraduate, said Tommy, who took something back with him to Oxford or Cambridge. Possibly, I suppose, but not likely. Did anyone actually talk about Mary Jordan? Well, only in the way of hearsay. 
not of actually knowing definitely about her being a German spy, only from their grandmothers or great-aunts or sisters or mothers, cousins or Uncle John's naval friend who knew all about it. Or did they talk about how Mary died? Well, they connected her death with the foxglove and spinach episode. Everyone recovered, they said, except her. Interesting, said Tommy. Same story, different setting. Too many ideas, perhaps, said Tuppence. Someone called Bessie said, Well, it was only my grandmother who talked about that, and of course it had all been years before her time, and I expect she'd got some of the details wrong. She usually did, I believe. You know, Tommy, with everyone talking at once, it's all muddled up. There was all the talk about spies and poison on picnics and everything. I couldn't get any exact dates, because, of course, nobody ever knows the exact date of anything your grandmother tells you. If she says, I was only sixteen at the time and I was terribly thrilled, you probably don't know now how old your grandmother really was. She'd probably say she was ninety now, because people like to say they're older than their age when they get to eighty, or if, of course, she's only about seventy, she says she's only fifty-two. Mary Jordan, said Tommy thoughtfully, as he quoted the words, did not die naturally. He had his suspicions. Wonder if he'd ever talked to a policeman about them. Well, you mean Alexander? Yes, and perhaps because of that, he talked too much. He had to die. A lot depends on Alexander, doesn't it? We do know when Alexander died because of his grave here. But Mary Jordan, we still don't know when or why. We'll find out in the end, said Tommy. You make a few lists of names you've got and dates and things. You'll be surprised, surprised what one can check up through an odd word or two here and there. You seem to have a lot of useful friends, said Tuppence enviously. So do you, said Tommy. Well, I don't really, said Tuppence. Oh, yes, you do. You set people in motion, said Tommy. You go and see one old lady with a birthday book? The next thing I know, you've been all through masses of people in an old pensioner's home, and you know all about things that happened at the time of their great-aunts, great-grandmothers, and Uncle John's and godfathers, and perhaps an old admiral at sea who told tales about espionage and all that. Once we can figure a few dates down and get on with a few inquiries, we might, who knows, get something. I wonder who the undergraduates were who were mentioned. Oxford and Cambridge, the ones who were said to have hidden something. Well, they don't sound very like espionage, said Tommy. No, they don't really, said Tuppence. And doctors and old clergymen, said Tommy. One could, I expect, check up on them, but I don't see it would lead one anywhere. It's all too far away. We're not near enough. We don't know. Has anybody tried anything more funny on you, Tuppence? Do you mean has anyone attempted my life in the last two days? No, they haven't. Nobody's invited me to go on a picnic. The brakes of the car are all right. There's a jar of weed killer in the potting shed, but it doesn't even seem to have been opened yet. Isaac keeps it there to be handy in case you come out with some sandwiches one day. Oh, poor Isaac, said Tuppence. You are not to say things against Isaac. He's becoming one of my best friends. Now, I wonder. That reminds me. Or what does it remind you of? I can't remember, said Tuppence, blinking her eyes. It reminded me of something when you said that about Isaac. Oh, dear, said Tommy, and sighed. One old lady, said Tuppence, was said to have always put her things in her mittens every night. 
Earrings, I think it was. That's the one who thought everyone was poisoning her. And somebody else remembered someone who put things in a missionary box or something. You know, the China thing for the waifs and strays. There was a label stuck onto it. But it wasn't for the waifs and strays at all, apparently. She used to put five-pound notes in it, so that she'd always have a nest egg, and when it got too full, she used to take it away and buy another box and break the first one. And spend the five pounds, I suppose, said Tommy. I suppose that was the idea. My cousin Emlyn used to say, said Tuppence, obviously quoting, nobody robbed the waifs and strays or missionaries, would they? If anyone smashed a box like that, somebody'd notice, wouldn't they? You haven't found any books of rather dull-looking sermons, have you, in your book search, in those rooms upstairs? No. Why? asked Tuppence. Well, I just thought they'd be a very good place to hide things in. You know, something really boring written about theology, an old crabbed book with the inside scooped out. Oh, hasn't been anything like that, said Tuppence. I should have noticed if there was. Would you have read it? Well, of course I wouldn't, said Tuppence. Well, there you are, then, said Tommy. You wouldn't have read it, and you'd have thrown it away, I expect. The Crown of Success. That's one book I remember, said Tuppence. There were two copies of that. Well, let's hope that success will crown our efforts. It seems to me very unlikely. Who killed Mary Jordan? That's the book we'll have to write one day, I suppose. If we ever find out, said Tuppence gloomily. Chapter 4 The Possibility of Surgery on Matilda What are you going to do this afternoon, Tuppence? Go on helping me with these lists of names and dates and things? I don't think so, said Tuppence. I've had all that. It really is most exhausting writing everything down. Every now and then, I do get things a bit wrong, don't I? Well, I wouldn't put it past you. You have made a few mistakes. I wish you weren't more accurate than I am, Tommy. I find it so annoying sometimes. Or what are you going to do instead? I wouldn't mind having a good nap. Oh, no, I'm not going to actually relax, said Tuppence. I think I'm going to disembowel Matilda. I beg your pardon, Tuppence. I said I was going to disembowel Matilda. What's the matter with you? You seem very set on violence. Matilda, she's in KK. What do you mean, she's in KK? Oh, the place where all the dumps are, you know. She's the rocking horse. The one that's got a hole in her stomach. Oh. And uh, you're going to examine her stomach, is that it? That's the idea, said Tuppence. Would you like to come and help me? Well, not really, said Tommy. Would you be kind enough to come and help me? suggested Tuppence. Or put like that, said Tommy, with a deep sigh. I will force myself to consent. Anyway, it won't be as bad as making lists. Is Isaac anywhere about? No, I think it's his afternoon off. Anyway, we don't want Isaac about. I think I've got all the information I can out of him. Well, he knows a good deal, said Tommy, thoughtfully. I found that out the other day. He was telling me a lot of things about the past. Well, he must be nearly eighty, said Tuppence. I'm quite sure of that. Well, yes, I know, but things really far back. People have always heard so many things, said Tuppence. You never know if they're right or not in what they've heard. Anyway, let's go and disembowel Matilda. I'd better change my clothes first, as it's excessively dusty and cobwebby in KK, and we have to burrow right inside her. Oh, you might get Isaac, if he's about, to turn her upside down. Then we could get at her stomach more easily. You really sound as though in your last reincarnation you must have been a surgeon. 
Well, I suppose it is a little like that. We are now going to remove foreign matter which might be dangerous to the preservation of Matilda's life, such as is left of it. We might have her painted up, and Deborah's twins perhaps would like to ride on her when they next come to stay. Oh, our grandchildren have so many toys and presents already. Well, that won't matter, said Tuppence. Children don't particularly like expensive presents. They'll play with an old bit of string or a rag doll or something they call a pet bear, which is only a bit of hearthrug, just made up into a bundle with a couple of black boot button eyes put in it. Children have their own ideas about toys. Well, come on, said Tommy. Forward to Matilda, to the operating theatre. The reversal of Matilda to a position suitable for the necessary operation to take place was not an easy job. Matilda was a fair weight. In addition to that, she was very well studied with various nails which would on occasion reverse their position and which had points sticking out. Tuppence wiped blood from her hand, and Tommy swore as he caught his pullover, which immediately tore itself in a somewhat disastrous fashion. Blow this damned rocking horse, said Tommy. Ought to have been put on a bonfire years ago, said Tuppence. It was at that moment that the aged Isaac suddenly appeared and joined them. Whatever now, he said, with some surprise. Whatever be you two doing here now? What do you want with this old bit of horse flesh here? Can I help you at all? What do you want to do with it? Do you want to take it out of here? Oh, not necessarily, said Tuppence. We want to turn it upside down so that we can get at the hole there and pull things out. Well, you mean pull things out from inside her, as you might say. Well, who's been putting that idea into your head? Yes, said Tuppence. That's what we do mean to do. Well, what do you think you'll find there? Nothing but rubbish, I expect, said Tommy. But it would be nice, he said in a rather doubtful voice, if things were cleared up a bit, you know. We might want to keep other things in here, you know, games, perhaps, a croquet set, something like that. Or oh, there used to be a croquet lawn once, long time ago. That was in Mrs. Faulkner's time. Yes, down where the rose garden is now. Mind you, it wasn't a full-size one. When was that? asked Tommy. What do you mean, the croquet lawn? Oh, well, before my time it was. There's always people as wants to tell you things about what used to happen, things as used to be hidden, and why, and who wanted to hide them. A lot of tall stories. Some of them lies. Some maybe as was true. You're very clever, Isaac, said Tuppence. You always seem to know about everything. How do you know about the croquet lawn? Oh, used to be a box of croquet things in here. Been there for ages. Shouldn't think there's much of it left now. Tuppence relinquished Matilda and went over to a corner where there was a long wooden box. After releasing the lid with some difficulty, as it had stuck under the ravages of time, it yielded a faded red ball, a blue ball, and one mallet bent and warped. The rest of it was mainly cobwebs. Might have been in Mrs. Faulkner's time, that might. They do say, you know, as she played in the tournaments in her time, said Isaac. At Wimbledon, said Tuppence, incredulous. Well, not exactly at Wimbledon, I don't think it was. No, the locals, you know, they used to have them down here. Pictures I've seen down at the photographers. The photographers? Ah, in the village, Durrance, you know. You know Durrance, don't you? Durrance? said Tuppence vaguely. Oh, yes, he sells films and things like that, doesn't he? That's right. Mind you, he's not the old Durrance as manages it now. He's his grandson. 
Or his great-grandson, I shouldn't wonder. He sells mostly postcards, you know, and Christmas cards and birthday cards, things like that. He used to take photographs of people, but a whole lot tucked away. Somebody came in the other day, you know, wanted a picture of her great-grandmother, she said. She said she'd had one, but she'd broken it or burned it or lost it or something, and she wondered if there was the negative left. But I don't think she found it. But there's a lot of old albums in there, stuck away somewhere. Albums, said Tuppence thoughtfully. Anything more I can do, said Isaac. Well, uh, just give us a bit of a hand with Jane, or whatever her name is. Oh, it's not Jane, it's Matilda. In fact, I believe it was always called Matilde for some reason. French, I expect. French or American, said Tommy thoughtfully. Matilde, Louise, that sort of thing. Quite a good place to have hidden things, don't you think? said Tuppence, placing her arm into the cavity in Matilda's stomach. She drew out a dilapidated India rubber ball, which had once been red and yellow, but which now had gaping holes in it. I suppose that's children, said Tuppence. They always put in things like this. Whenever they see a hole, said Isaac. But there was a young gentleman once as used to leave his letters in it, so I've heard, same as though it was a postbox. Letters? Who were they for? Some young lady, I'd think. But it was before my time, said Isaac, as usual. The things that always happened long before Isaac's time, said Tuppence, as Isaac, having adjusted Matilda into a good position, left them on the pretext of having to shut up the frames. Tommy removed his jacket. It's incredible, said Tuppence, panting a little as she removed a scratched and dirty arm from the gaping wound in Matilda's stomach, that anyone could put so many things, or want to put them in this thing, and that nobody should have ever cleaned it out. Well, why should anyone clean it out? Why would anyone want to clean it out? Well, that's true, said Tuppence. We do, though, don't we? <laughs> Only because we can't think of anything better to do. I don't think anything will come of it, though. Ow! What's the matter? said Tuppence. Oh, I scratched myself on something. He drew his arm out slightly, readjusted it, and felt inside once more. A knitted scarf rewarded him. It had clearly been the sustenance of moths at one time, and possibly after that had descended to an even lower level of social life. Disgusting, said Tommy. Tuppence pushed him aside slightly and fished in with her own arm, leaning over Matilda, while she felt about inside. Mind the nails, said Tommy. What's this? said Tuppence. She brought out her find into the open air. It appeared to be the wheel of a bus or cart or some child's toy. I think, she said, we're wasting our time. I'm sure we are, said Tommy. All the same, we might as well do it properly, said Tuppence. Oh dear! I've got three spiders walking up my arm. <laughs> It'll be a worm in a minute. I hate worms. I don't think there'll be any worms inside Matilda. I mean worms like going underground in the earth. I don't think they'd care for Matilda as a boarding house, do you? Oh, well, it's getting empty at any rate, I think, said Tuppence. Hello, what's this? Dear me, it seems to be a needle book. What a funny thing to find. There's still some needles in it but they're all rusted. Some child who didn't like to do her sewing, I expect, said Tommy. Yes, that's a good idea. 
I touched something that felt like a book just now, said Tommy. Oh, well, that might be helpful. What part of Matilda? Oh, I should think the appendix or the liver, said Tommy in a professional tone. On her right-hand side, I'm regarding this as an operation, he added. All right, surgeon. Better pull it out, whatever it is. The so-called book, barely recognizable as such, was of ancient lineage. Its pages were loose and stained, and its binding was coming to pieces. It seems to be a manual of French, said Tommy. Pour les enfants, le petit précepteur. I see, said Tuppence. I've got the same idea as you had. The child didn't want to learn her French lesson, so she came in here and deliberately lost it by putting it into Matilda. Good old Matilda. Well, if Matilda was right side up, it must have been very difficult putting things through this hole in her stomach. Well, not for a child, said Tuppence. She'd be quite the right height and everything. I mean, she'd kneel and crawl underneath it. Hello. Here's something which feels slippery. Feels rather like an animal's skin. How oh, very unpleasant, said Tommy. You think it's a dead rabbit or something? Well, it's not furry or anything. I don't think it's very nice. Oh, dear, there's a nail again. Well, it seems to be hung on a nail. There's a sort of bit of string or cord. Funny it hasn't rotted away, isn't it? She drew out her find cautiously. It's a pocketbook, she said. Yes. Yes, it's been quite good leather once, I think. Quite good leather. Well, let's see what's inside it. If there is anything inside it, said Tommy. There is something inside it, said Tuppence. Perhaps it's a lot of old five-pound notes, she added hopefully. Well, I don't suppose they'll be usable still. Paper would rot, wouldn't it? I don't know, said Tuppence. A lot of queer things do survive, you know. I think five-pound notes used to be made of wonderfully good paper once. You know, sort of thin but very durable. Oh, well, perhaps it's a twenty-pound note. It'll help with the housekeeping. What? The money will be before Isaac's time, too, I expect, or else he'd have found it. Ah, oh, well, think. It might be a hundred-pound note. I wish it were golden sovereigns. Sovereigns were always in purses. My great-aunt Maria had a great purse full of sovereigns. She used to show it to us as children. It was her nest egg, she said, in case the French came. I think it was the French. Anyway, it was for extremities or danger. Lovely, fat, golden sovereigns. I used to think it was wonderful. And I'd think how lovely it would be, you know, once one was grown up, and you'd have a purse full of sovereigns. Who was going to give you a purse full of sovereigns? Well, I didn't think of anyone giving it to me, said Tuppence. I thought of it as a sort of thing that belonged to you as a right once you were a grown-up person. You know, a real grown-up wearing a mantle. That's what they called the things. A mantle with a sort of fur bow around it and a bonnet. You had this great fat purse jammed full of sovereigns. And if you had a favourite grandson who was going back to school, you always gave him a sovereign as a tip. Well, what about the girls? The granddaughters? I don't think they got any sovereigns, said Tuppence, but sometimes she used to send me a half a five-pound note. Half a five-pound note? Well, that wouldn't be much good. Oh, yes, it was. She used to tear the five-pound note in half, send me one half first, and then the other half in another letter later. You see, it was supposed in that way that nobody would want to steal it. Oh, dear, what a lot of precautions everyone did take. They did rather, said Tuppence. Hello. What's this? She was fumbling now in the leather case. Oh, let's get out of KK for a minute, said Tommy, and get some air. They got outside KK. 
In the air they saw better what their trophy was like. It was a thick leather wallet of good quality. It was stiff with age, but not in any way destroyed. I expect it was kept from damp inside Matilda, said Tuppence. Oh, Tommy, do you know what I think this is? No. What? It isn't money, said Tuppence, but I think it's letters. I don't know whether we'll be able to read them now. They're, they're very old and faded. Very carefully, Tommy arranged the crinkled yellow paper of the letters, pushing them apart when he could. The writing was quite large, and had once been written in a very deep blue-black ink. Meeting place changed, said Tommy. Ken Gardens, near Peter Pan. Wednesday, 25th, 3.30pm, Joanna. I really believe, said Tuppence, we might have something at last. Well, you mean that someone who'd be going up to London was told to go on a certain day and meet someone in Kensington Gardens, bringing papers or the plans or whatever it was. Who do you think got these things out of Matilda or, or put them into Matilda? It couldn't have been a child, said Tuppence. It must have been someone who'd lived in the house and so could move about without being noticed, got things from the naval spy, I suppose, and took them to London. Tuppence wrapped up the old leather wallet in the scarf she'd been wearing round her neck, and she and Tommy returned to the house. There may be other papers in there, said Tuppence, but most of them, I think, are perished and will more or less fall to pieces if you touch them. Hello, what's this? On the hall table, a rather bulky package was lying. Albert came out from the dining room. It was left by hand, madam, he said. Left by hand this morning for you. Ah, I wonder what it is, said Tuppence. She took it. Tommy and she went into the sitting room together. Tuppence undid the knot of the string and took off the brown paper wrapping. It's a kind of album, she said. Oh, I think there's a note with it. Ah, it's from Mrs. Griffin. Dear Mrs. Beresford, it was so kind of you to bring me the birthday book the other day, I have had great pleasure looking over it and remembering various people from past days. One does forget so soon. Very often one only remembers somebody's Christian name and not their surname. Sometimes it's the other way about. I came across a little time ago this old album. It doesn't really belong to me, I think it belonged to my grandmother, but it has a good many pictures in it, and among them, I think, there are one or two of the Parkinson's, because my grandmother knew the Parkinson's, I thought perhaps you would like to see it, as you seem to be so interested in the history of your house and who has lived in it in the past. Please don't bother to send it back to me, because it means nothing to me personally, really, I can assure you. One has so many things in the house, always belonging to aunts and grandmothers, and the other day when I was looking in an old chest of drawers in the attic, I came across six needle books, years and years old, and I believe that was not my grandmother, but her grandmother again, who used at one time always to give a needle-book to the maids for Christmas. And I think these were some that she had bought at a sale and would do for another year. Of course, quite useless now. Sometimes it seems sad to think of how much waste there has always been. A photo album, said Tuppence. Well, that might be fun. Come along, let's have a look. They sat down on the sofa. The album was very typical of bygone days. 
Most of the prints were faded by now, but every now and then Tuppence managed to recognize surroundings that fitted the gardens of their own house. Look, there's the monkey puzzle. Yes, and look, there's true love behind it. That must be a very old photograph. And a funny little boy hanging on to true love. Yes, and there's the wisteria, there's the pampas grass. I suppose it must have been a tea party or something. Yes, there are a lot of people sitting around a table in the garden. They've got names underneath them, too. Mabel. Mabel's no beauty. And who's that? Charles, said Tommy. Charles and Edmund. Charles and Edmund seem to have been playing tennis. They've got rather queer tennis rackets. And there's William, whoever he was, and Major Coates. And there's... Oh, Tommy, there's Mary. Yes, Mary Jordan. Both names there, written under the photograph. She was pretty, very pretty, I think. It's very faded and old, but... Oh, Tommy, it really seems wonderful to see Mary Jordan. I wonder who took the photograph. Or perhaps the photographer that Isaac mentioned. The one in the village here. Perhaps he'd have old photographs too. I think perhaps one day we'll go and ask. Tommy had pushed aside the album by now and was opening a letter which had come in the midday post. Anything interesting? asked Tuppence. There are three letters here, two are bills, I can see. This one, yes, this one is rather different. I asked you if it was interesting, said Tuppence. It may be, said Tommy. I'll have to go to London tomorrow again. To deal with your usual committees? Uh, not exactly, said Tommy. I'm going to call on someone. Actually, it isn't London. It's out of London somewhere, Harrow Way, I gather. What is? said Tuppence. You haven't told me yet. I'm going to call on someone called Colonel Pikeaway. What a name, said Tuppence. Yes, it is rather, isn't it? Have I heard it before? said Tuppence. I may have mentioned it to you once. He lives in a kind of permanent atmosphere of smoke. Have you got any cough lozenges, Tuppence? Cough lozenges? Um, well, I, I don't know. Yes, I think I have. I've got an old box of them from last winter. But you haven't got a cough, not that I've noticed at any rate. No, but I shall have if I'm going to see Pike away. As far as I can remember, you take two choking breaths and then go on choking. You look hopefully at all the windows, which are tightly shut. Pike away would never take a hint of that kind. Why do you think he wants to see you? Can't imagine, said Tommy. He mentions Robinson. What, the yellow one? The one who's got a fat yellow face and is something very hush-hush. That's the one, said Tommy. Oh, well, said Tuppence. Perhaps what we're mixed up in here is hush-hush. <laughs> Hardly could be, considering it all took place, whatever it was, if there was anything, years and years ago, before even Isaac can remember. New sins have old shadows, said Tuppence, if that's the saying I mean. I haven't got it quite right. New sins have old shadows, or... Or is it old sins make long shadows? I should forget it, said Tommy. None of them sounds right. I shall go and see that photographer man this afternoon, I think. Want to come? No, said Tommy. I think I shall go down and bathe. Bathe? It'll be awfully cold. Oh, never mind. I feel I need something cold, bracing and refreshing to remove all the taste of cobwebs, the various remains of which seem to be clinging around my ears and round my neck and... Some even seem to have got between my toes. 
for this does seem a very dirty job, said Tuppence. Well, I'll go and see Mr. Durrell, or, or Durrance, if that's his name. There was another letter, Tommy, which you haven't opened. Oh, I didn't see it. Ah, well, that might be something. Who's it from? My researcher, said Tommy, in a rather grand voice. The one who's been running about England in and out of Somerset House, looking up deaths, marriages and births, consulting newspaper files and census returns. She's very good. Good and beautiful? Not beautiful so that you'd notice it, said Tommy. I'm glad of that, said Tuppence. You know, Tommy, now that you're getting on in years, you might you might get some rather dangerous ideas about a beautiful helper. You don't appreciate a faithful husband when you've got one, said Tommy. All my friends tell me you never know with your husbands, said Tuppence. You have the wrong kind of friends, said Tommy. Chapter 5 Interview with Colonel Pikeaway Tommy drove through Regent's Park, then he passed through various roads he'd not been through for years. Once, when he and Tuppence had had a flat near Belsize Park, he remembered walks on Hampstead Heath, and a dog they'd had, who'd enjoyed the walks, a dog with a particularly self-willed nature. When coming out of the flat, he had always wished to turn to the left on the road that would lead to Hampstead Heath. The efforts of Tuppence or Tommy to make him turn to the right and go into shopping quarters were usually defeated. James, a Sealyham of obstinate nature, had allowed his heavy, sausage-like body to rest flat on the pavement. He would produce a tongue from his mouth and give every semblance of being a dog tired out by being given the wrong kind of exercise by those who owned him. People passing by usually could not refrain from comment. Oh, look at that dear little dog there. You know, the one with the white hair looks rather like a sausage, doesn't he? And panting, poor fellow. Those people of his, they won't let him go the way he wants to. He looks tired out, just tired out. Tommy had taken the lead from Tuppence and had pulled James firmly in the opposite direction from the one he wanted to go. Oh dear, said Tuppence, can't you pick him up, Tommy? What, pick up James? He's too much of a weight. James, with a clever manoeuvre, turned his sausage body so that he was facing once more in the direction of his expectation. Oh, look, poor little doggy, I expect he wants to go home, don't you? James tugged firmly on his lead. Oh, all right, said Tuppence, we'll shop later. Come on, we'll have to let James go where he wants to go. He's such a heavy dog, you can't make him do anything else. James looked up and wagged his tail. I quite agree with you, the wag seemed to say. You've got the point at last. Come on, Hampstead Heath it is. And it usually had been. Tommy wondered. He'd got the address of the place where he was going. The last time he had been to see Colonel Pikeaway, it had been in Bloomsbury. A small, pokey room full of smoke. Here, yeah, when he reached the address, it was a small, nondescript house fronting on the heath not far from the birthplace of Keats. It did not look particularly artistic or interesting. Tommy rang a bell. An old woman with a close resemblance to what Tommy imagined a witch might look like, with a sharp nose and a sharp chin which almost met each other, stood there, looking hostile. Uh, can I see Colonel Pikeaway? Don't know, I'm sure, said the witch. Who would you be now? Uh, my name is Beresford. Oh, I see. Yes, he did say something about that. Can I leave the car outside? Yes, it'll be all right for a bit. Don't get many of the wardens poking around this street. No yellow lines just along here. Better lock it up, sir, you never know. 
Tommy attended to these rules as laid down and followed the old woman into the house. One flight up, she said. Not more. Already on the stairs, there was a strong smell of tobacco. The witch woman tapped at a door, poked her head in and said, This must be the gentleman you wanted to see. Says you're expecting him. She stood aside, and Tommy passed into what he remembered before, an aroma of smoke, which forced him almost immediately to choke and gulp. He doubted he would have remembered Colonel Pikeaway, apart from the cloud of smoke and the smell of nicotine. A very old man lay back in an armchair, a somewhat ragged armchair with holes on the arms of it. He looked up thoughtfully as Tommy entered. <coughs> Shut the door, Mrs. Copes, he said. Don't want to let the cold air in, do we? Tommy rather thought that they did, but obviously it was not his to reason why. His but to inhale, and in due course die, he presumed. Thomas Beresford, said Colonel Pikeaway thoughtfully. Well, well. How many years is it since I saw you? Tommy had not made a proper computation. Long time ago, said Colonel Pikeaway. Came here with, uh, what's his name, didn't you? Oh, well, never mind. One name's as good as another. A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Juliet said that, didn't she? Silly things sometimes, Shakespeare made them say. Of course he couldn't help it, he was a poet. Never cared much for Romeo and Juliet myself. All those suicides for love's sake. Plenty of them about, mind you. Always happening, even nowadays. Sit down, my boy, sit down. Tommy was slightly startled at being called my boy, again, but he availed himself of the invitation. Uh, you don't mind, sir? he said, dispossessing the only possible seeming chair of a large pile of books. No, 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 shove them all on the floor. Just trying to look something up, I was. Well, well, I'm pleased to see you. You look a bit older than you did, but you look quite healthy. Ever had a coronary? No, said Tommy. Ah, good. Too many people suffering from hearts, and blood pressure, all those things. Doing too much, that's what it is. Running about all over the place, telling everyone how busy they are and the world can't get on without them and how important they are and everything else. Do you feel the same? I expect you do. Uh, no, said Tommy. I don't feel very important. I feel, well, I feel that I would enjoy relaxing nowadays. Well, it's a splendid thought, said Colonel Pikeaway. The trouble is, there are so many people about who won't let you relax. What took you to this place of yours where you're living now? I've forgotten the name of it. Just tell me again, will you? Tommy obliged with his address. Ah, oh, yes, ah, oh, yes. I put the right thing on the envelope, then? Yes, I, I got your letter. I understand you've been to see Robinson. He's still going, just as fat as ever, just as yellow as ever, and just as rich, or, or richer than ever, I expect. Knows all about it, too. Knows about money, I mean. What took you there, boy? Well, we had bought a new house, and a friend of mine advised me that Mr. Robinson might be able to clear up a mystery that my wife and I found connected with it, relating to a long time back. Oh, I remember now. I don't believe I ever met her. But you've got a clever wife, haven't you? Did some sterling work in the, uh, what is the thing sounded like a catechism? N or M, that was it, wasn't it? Yes, said Tommy. And now you're on to the same line again, are you? 
looking into things? Had suspicions, had you? No, said Tommy, that's entirely wrong. We only went there because we were tired of the flat we were living in, and they kept putting up the rent. Nasty trick, said Colonel Pikeaway. They do that to you nowadays, the landlords. Never satisfied. Talk about daughters of the horse-leech. Sons of the horse-leech are just as bad. All right, you, you went to live there. Il faut cultiver son jardin, <laughs> said Colonel Pikeaway with a rather sudden onslaught on the French language. Trying to rub out my French again, he explained. Got to keep up with the common market nowadays, haven't we? Funny stuff going on there, by the way. You know, behind things, not what you see on the surface. So you went to live at Swallow's Nest. What took you to Swallow's Nest, I'd like to know. Uh, the house we bought, uh, well, it's called the Laurels now, said Tommy. Silly name, said Colonel Pikeaway. Very popular at one time, though. I remember when I was a boy, all the neighbors, you know, they had those great Victorian drives up to the house, always getting in loads of gravel for putting down on it and laurels on each side. Sometimes they were glossy green ones and sometimes the speckled ones. Supposed to be very showy. I suppose some of the people who've lived there called it that and the name stuck. Is that right? Yes, I think so, said Tommy. Not the last people. I believe the last people called it Katmandu, or some name abroad, because they lived in a certain place they liked. Yes, yes, Swallow's Nest goes back a long time. Yes, but one's got to go back sometimes. In fact, that's what I was going to talk to you about, going back. Did you ever know it, sir? What? Swallow's Nest, alias the Laurels? No, I never went there, but it figured in certain things. It's tied up with certain periods in the past people over a certain period, a period of great anxiety to this country. I gather you've come into contact with some information pertaining to someone called Mary Jordan, or known by that name. Anyway, that's what Mr. Robinson told us. Want to see what she looked like? Go over to the mantelpiece. There's a photograph on the left side. Tommy got up, went across to the mantelpiece and picked up the photograph. It represented an old-world type of photograph, a girl wearing a picture hat and holding up a bunch of roses towards her head. Looks damn silly now, doesn't it? said Colonel Pikeaway. But she was a good-looking girl, I believe. Unlucky, though. She died young. Rather a tragedy, that was. I don't know anything about her, said Tommy. No, I don't suppose so, said Colonel Pikeaway. Nobody does nowadays. There was some idea locally that she was a German spy said Tommy. Mr. Robinson told me that that wasn't the case. No, it wasn't the case. She belonged to us, and she did good work for us, too. And somebody got wise to her. That was when there were some people called Parkinson living there, said Tommy. Maybe, maybe, I don't know all the details. Nobody does nowadays. I wasn't personally involved, you know. All this has been raked up since. Because, you see, there's always trouble. There's trouble in every country. There's trouble all over the world, now, and not for the first time. No, you can go back a hundred years and you'll find trouble, and you can go back another hundred years you'll find trouble. Go back to the Crusades and you'll find everyone dashing out of the country, going to deliver Jerusalem, or you'll find risings all over the country, Watt Tyler and all the rest of them, this, that, and the other. There's always trouble. Do you mean there's some special trouble now? Well, of course there is. I tell you, there's always trouble. What sort of trouble? 
Oh, we don't know, says Colonel Pikeaway. They even come round to an old man like me and ask me what I can tell them, or what I can remember about certain people in the past. Well, I can't remember very much, but I know about one or two people. You've got to look into the past sometimes. You've got to know what was happening then, what secrets people had, what knowledge they had that they kept to themselves, what they hid away, what they pretended was happening, and what was really happening. You've done good jobs, you and your missus, at different times. Do you want to go on with it now? I don't know, said Tommy. If, well, do you think there is anything I could do? I, I'm rather an old man now. Well, you look to me as though you've got better health than many people of your age. Look to me as though you've got better health than some of the younger ones, too. And as for your wife, well, she was always good at nosing out things, wasn't she? Yeah, as good as a well-trained dog. Tommy could not repress a smile. But... What is this all about? said Tommy. I, well, of course, I'm quite willing to do anything if, if you, if you thought I could, but I, I don't know. I mean, nobody's told me anything. I don't suppose they will, said Colonel Pikeaway. I don't think they want me to tell you anything. I don't suppose that Robinson told you much. He keeps his mouth shut, that large, fat man. But I'll tell you, well, the bare facts. You know what the world's like. Well, the same thing always. Violence, swindles, materialism, rebellion by the young, love of violence, and a good deal of sadism, almost as bad as the days of the Hitler Youth, all those things. Well, when you want to find out what's wrong, not only in this country, but world trouble as well, it's not easy. It's a good thing, the common market. It's what we always needed, always wanted. But it's got to be a real common market. That's got to be understood very clearly. It's got to be a united Europe. There's got to be a, a union of civilized countries with civilized ideas and with civilized beliefs and principles. The first thing is, when there's something wrong, you've got to know where that something is, and that's where that yellow whale of a fellow still knows his oats. You mean Mr. Robinson? Yes, I mean Mr. Robinson. They wanted to give him a peerage, you know, but he wouldn't have it. And you know what he means? I suppose, said Tommy. You mean, he stands for money. That's right. Not materialism, but he knows about money. He knows where it comes from. He knows where it goes. He knows why it goes. He knows who's behind things, behind banks, behind big industrial undertakings. And he has to know who is responsible for certain things. Big fortunes made out of drugs, drug pushers, drugs being sent all over the world, being marketed, worship of money. Money not just for buying yourself a big house and two Rolls Royces, but money for making more money and doing down doing away with the old beliefs, beliefs in honesty and fair trading. You don't want equality in the world. You want the strong to help the weak. You want the rich to finance the poor. You want the honest and the good to be looked up to and admired. Finance. Things are coming back now to finance all the time. What finance is doing, where it's going, what it's supporting, how far hidden it is. There are people you knew, people in the past who had power and brains, and their power and brains brought the money and means, and some of their activities were secret. But we've got to find out about them, find out who their secrets passed to, who they've been handed down to, who may be running things now. Swallow's Nest was a type of headquarters. A headquarters for what I should call evil. Later, in Hollow Key, there was something else. Do you remember Jonathan Kane at all? It's a name I know said Tommy. I don't remember anything personally. Well, he was said to be what was admired at one time. 
What came to be known later as a fascist? That was the time before we knew what Hitler was going to be like and all the rest of them. The time when we thought that something like fascism might be a splendid idea to reform the world with. This chap, Jonathan Cain, had followers. A lot of followers. Young followers, middle-aged followers, a lot of them. He had plans, he had sources of power, he knew the secrets of a lot of people. He had the kind of knowledge that gave him power. Plenty of blackmail about, as always. We want to know what he knew, we want to know what he did, and I think it's possible that he left both plans and followers behind him. Young people who were enmeshed, and perhaps still are in favor of his ideas. There have been secrets, you know. There are always secrets that are worth money. I'm not telling you anything exact, because I don't know anything exact. The trouble is that nobody really knows. We think we know everything because of what we've been through. Wars, turmoil, peace, new forms of government. We think we know it all, but do we? Do we know anything about germ warfare? Do we know everything about gases, about means of inducing pollution? The chemists have their secrets, the Navy, the Air Force, all sorts of things. And they're not all in the present. Some of them were in the past. Some of them were on the point of being developed, but the development didn't take place. There wasn't time for it. But it was written down. It was committed to paper or committed to certain people. And those people had children, and their children had children, and maybe some of the things came down, left in wills, left in documents, left with solicitors to be delivered at a certain time. Some people don't know what it is they've got hold of. Some of them have just destroyed it as rubbish. But we've got to find out a little more than we know now, because things are happening all the time, in different countries, in different places, in wars, in Vietnam, in guerrilla wars, in Jordan, in Israel, even in the uninvolved countries, in Sweden, Switzerland, anywhere. There are these things, and we want clues to them. And there's some idea that some of the clues could be found in the past. Well, you can't go back into the past, and you can't go to a doctor and say, hypnotize me and let me see what happened in 1914, or in 1918, or earlier still, perhaps. In 1890, perhaps something was being planned, something was never completely developed. Ideas, just look far back. They were thinking of flying, you know, in the Middle Ages. They had some ideas about it. The ancient Egyptians, I believe, had certain ideas. They were never developed. But once the ideas passed on, once you come to the time when they get into the hands of someone who has the means and the kind of brain that can develop them, anything may happen, bad or good. We have a feeling lately that some of the things that have been invented, germ warfare, for example, are difficult to explain except through the process of some secret development, thought to be unimportant. But it hasn't been unimportant. Somebody, whose hands it's got into, has made some adaptation of it which can produce very, very frightening results, things that can change a character, can perhaps turn a good man to a fiend. And usually for the same reason. For money. Money, and what money can buy, what money can get the power that money can develop. Well, young Beresford, what do you say to all that? I think it's a very frightening prospect, said Tommy. That, yes, but do you think I'm talking nonsense? Do you think this is just an old man's fantasies? No, sir, said Tommy. I think you're a man who knows things. You always have been a man who knew things. Hmm. That's why they wanted me, wasn't it? They came here, complained about all the smoke, said it stifled them, but, well, you know, there was a time. Oh, that Frankfurt ring business. Well, we managed to stop that. We managed to stop it by getting at who was behind it. There's a somebody, not just one somebody, several somebodies who were probably behind this. And perhaps we can know who they are.
I see, said Tommy. I can almost understand. Can you? Don't you think all this is rather nonsense, rather fantastic? Well, I don't think anything's too fantastic to be true, said Tommy. I've learned that at least through a pretty long life. The most amazing things are true, things you couldn't believe could be true. But what I have to make you understand is that I have no qualifications, I have no scientific knowledge. I've been concerned always with security. But, said Colonel Pikeaway, you're a man who's always been able to find out things. You, you and the other one, your wife. I tell you, she's got a nose for things. She likes to find out things, and you go about and take her about. These women are like that. They can get at secrets. If you're young and beautiful, you can do it like Delilah. When you're old, I can tell you, I had an old great-aunt once, and there was no secret that she didn't nose into and find out the truth about. There's the money side. Robinson's onto that. He knows about money. He knows where the money goes, why it goes, where it goes to, and where it comes from, and what it's doing. All the rest of it. He knows about money. It's like a doctor feeling your pulse. He can feel a financier's pulse. Where the headquarters of money are, who's using it, what for, and why. I'm putting you onto this because you're in the right place. You're in the right place by accident, and you're not there for the reason anyone might suppose you were. For there you are, an ordinary couple, elderly, retired, seeking for a nice house to end your days in, poking about into the corners of it, interested in talking. Some sentence one day will tell you something. That's all I want you to do. Look about. Find out what legends or stories are told about the good old days or the bad old days. A naval scandal? Plans of a submarine or something that's talked about still? said Tommy. Several people keep mentioning it, but nobody seems to know anything really about it. Yes. Well, that's a good starting point. It was round about then that Jonathan Kane lived in that part, you know. He had a cottage down near the sea, and he ran his propaganda campaign round there. He had disciples who thought he was wonderful. Jonathan Kane. K-A-N-E, but I would rather spell it a different way. I'd spell it C-A-I-N. That would describe him better. He was set on destruction and methods of destruction. He left England. He went through Italy to countries rather far away, so it said. How much is rumour, I don't know. He went to Russia, he went to Iceland, he went to the American continent. Where he went, and what he did, and who he went with, and who listened to him, we don't know. But we think that he knew things, simple things. He was popular with his neighbours, he lunched with them, and they with him. Now one thing I've got to tell you. Look about you. Ferret out things. But for goodness sake, take care of yourselves, both of you. Take care of that, what's her name? Prudence? Nobody ever called her Prudence. Tuppence, said Tommy. That's right. Take care of Tuppence, and tell Tuppence to take care of you. Take care of what you eat and what you drink and where you go and who is making up to you and being friendly and why should they. A little information comes along, something odd or queer, some story in the past that might mean something, someone perhaps who's a descendant or a relative of someone who knew people in the past. I'll do what I can, said Tommy. We both will. But I don't feel that we'll be able to do it. We're too old. We don't know enough. You could have ideas. Yes, Tuppence has ideas. She thinks that something might be hidden in our house. So it might. Others have had the same idea. Nobody's ever found anything so far, but then they haven't really looked with any assurance at all. Various houses and various families, they change. They get sold, and somebody else comes, and then somebody else, and so they go on. 
The Strangers and Mortimers and Parkinsons. Nothing much in the Parkinsons except for one of the boys. Alexander Parkinson? Oh, you know about him. How did you manage that? He left a message for someone to find in one of Robert Louis Stevenson's books. Mary Jordan did not die naturally, and we found it. The fate of every man we have bound about his neck. Some saying like that, isn't there? Carry on, you two. Pass through the postern of fate. Chapter 6 Postern of Fate Mr. Durrance's shop was halfway up the village. It was on a corner site, had a few photographs displayed in the window, a couple of marriage groups, a kicking baby in a nudist condition on a rug, one or two bearded young men taken with their girls. None of the photographs were very good, some of them already displayed signs of age. There were also postcards in large numbers, birthday cards, and a few special shelves arranged in order of relationships to my husband, to my wife, one or two bathing groups. There were a few pocketbooks and wallets of rather poor quality, and a certain amount of stationery and envelopes bearing floral designs. Boxes of small notepaper decorated with flowers and labelled for notes. Tuppence wandered about a little, picking up various specimens of the merchandise and waiting whilst a discussion about the results obtained from a certain camera were criticised, and advice was asked. An elderly woman with grey hair and rather lacklustre eyes attended to a good deal of the more ordinary requests. A rather tall young man with long flaxen hair and a budding beard seemed to be the principal attendant. He came along the counter towards Tuppence, looking at her questioningly. Can I help you in any way? Oh, really, said Tuppence. I, I wanted to ask about albums. You know, photographic albums. Ah, things to stick your photos in, you mean? Well, we've got one or two of those, but uh, you don't get so much of them nowadays. I mean, people go very largely for transparencies, of course. Yes, I understand, said Tuppence. But I collect them, you know, I collect old albums. Uh, ones like this. She produced, with the air of a conjurer, the album she'd been sent. Ah, that goes back a long time, doesn't it? said Mr. Durrance. Ah, well now. Over fifty years old, I should say. Of course, they... Did do a lot of those things around then, didn't they? Everyone had an album. They had birthday books, too, said Tuppence. Birthday books? Oh, yes, I remember something about them. My grandmother had a birthday book, I remember. Lots of people had to write their name in it. We've got birthday cards here still, but people don't buy them much nowadays. It's more Valentine's, you know, and Happy Christmases, of course. I don't know whether you have any old albums... You know, the, the, the sort of things people don't want anymore, but they interest me as a collector. I like having different specimens. Well, everyone collects something nowadays, that's true enough, said Durrance. You'd hardly believe it, the things people collect. I don't think I've got anything as old as this one of yours, though. However, I, I could look around. He went behind the counter and pulled open a drawer against the wall. A lot of stuff in here, he said. I meant to turn it out sometime, but... I didn't know as there'd really be any market for it. A lot of weddings here, of course. But then I mean weddings date. People want them just at the time of the wedding, but nobody comes back to look for weddings in the past. You mean nobody comes in and says, my grandmother was married here, I wonder if you've got any photographs of her wedding. Oh, I don't think anyone's ever asked me that, said Durrance. Still, you never know. 
They do ask you for queer things sometimes. Sometimes, you know, someone comes in and wants to see whether you've kept a negative of a baby. You know what mothers are. They want pictures of their babies when they were young. Awful pictures most of them are anyway. Now and then we've even had the police round, you know. They want to identify someone. Someone who was here as a boy and they want to see what he looks like. Or rather, you know, what he looked like then and whether he's likely to be the same one as they were looking for now and whom they're after because he's wanted for murder or for swindles. I must say that cheers things up sometimes, said Durrance with a happy smile. Oh, I see you're quite crime-minded, said Tuppence. Oh, well, you know, you're reading about things like that every day. Why, this man is supposed to have killed his wife about six months ago and all that. Well, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, some people say she's still alive. Other people say that he buried her somewhere and nobody's found her. Things like that. Well, a photograph of him might come in useful. Yes, said Tuppence. She felt that though she was getting on good terms with Mr. Durrance, nothing was coming of it. I don't suppose you'd have any photographs of someone called... Um, I, I think her name was Mary Jordan. Some name like that, but it was a long time ago, about, oh, I suppose, sixty years. I think she died here. Well, it'd be well before my time, said Mr. Durrance. Father kept a good many things. You know, he was one of those hoarders, they called him. Never wanted to throw anything away. Anyone he'd known, he'd remember. Especially if there was history about it. Mary Jordan. I seem to remember something about her. Something to do with the Navy, wasn't it? And a submarine. And they said she was a spy, wasn't she? She was half foreign. Had a Russian mother, or, or, or a German mother, might have been a Japanese mother, or something like that. Yes, I, I wondered if you had any pictures of her. Well, I don't think so. I'll have a look round some time when, when I've got a little time. I, I'll let you know if anything turns up. Perhaps you're a, a writer, are you? he said hopefully. Well, said Tuppence, I don't make a whole time job of it, but I'm thinking of bringing out a rather small book, you know, recalling the times of about anything from a hundred years ago down till today. You know, curious things that have happened, including crimes and adventures. And of course, old photographs are very interesting and would illustrate the book beautifully. Well, I'll do everything I can to help you, I'm sure. Must be quite interesting what you're doing. Quite interesting to do, I mean. There were some people called Parkinson, said Tuppence. I think they lived in our house once. Ah, you come from the house up on the hill, don't you? The Laurels or Katmandu. I can't remember what it was called last. Swallow's Nest it was called once, wasn't it? Can't think why. I suppose there were a lot of swallows nesting in the roof, suggested Tuppence. There still are. Well, may have been, I suppose, but it seems a funny name for a house. Tuppence. Having felt that she'd opened relations satisfactorily, though not hoping very much that any result would come of it, bought a few postcards and some flowered notes in the way of stationery, and wished Mr. Durrance goodbye. Got back to the gate, walked up the drive, then checked herself on the way to the house, and went up the side path round it to have one more look at K.K. She got near the door. She stopped suddenly, then walked on. It looked as though something like a bundle of clothes was lying near the door, something they'd pulled out of Matilda and not thought to look at. Tuppence wondered. She quickened her pace, almost running. When she got near the door, she stopped suddenly. It was not a bundle of old clothes. The clothes were old enough, and so was the body that wore them. Tuppence bent over, and then stood up again, 
steadied herself with a hand on the door. Isaac, she said. Isaac. Poor old Isaac. I believe, oh, I, I do believe that he's dead. Somebody was coming towards her on the path from the house as she called out, taking a step or two. Oh, Albert, Albert, something awful's happened. Isaac, old Isaac, he's lying there and he's dead and I think, I think somebody has killed him. Chapter 7 The Inquest The medical evidence had been given. Two passers-by, not far from the gate, had given their evidence. The family had spoken, giving evidence as to the state of his health. Any possible people who had had reason for enmity towards him, one or two youngish adolescent boys who had before now been warned off by him, had been asked to assist the police and had protested their innocence. One or two of his employers had spoken, including his latest employer, Mrs. Prudence Beresford, and her husband, Mr. Thomas Beresford. All had been said and done, and a verdict had been brought in. Willful murder by a person or persons unknown. Tuppence came out of the inquest, and Tommy put an arm round her as they passed the little group of people waiting outside. You did very well, Tuppence, he said as they returned through the gate towards the house. Very well indeed, much better than some of those people. You were very clear, and you could be heard. The coroner seemed to me to be very pleased with you. I don't want anyone to be very pleased with me, said Tuppence. I don't like old Isaac being coshed on the head and killed like that. I suppose someone might have had it in for him, said Tommy. Why should they? said Tuppence. I don't know said Tommy. No, said Tuppence, and I don't know either. But I just wondered if it's anything to do with us. Do you mean... Well, what do you mean, Tuppence? You know what I mean, really, said Tuppence. It's this... this place, our house, our, our lovely new house, and garden and everything. And we thought it was just the right place for us. We thought it was, said Tuppence. Well, I still do, said Tommy. Yes, said Tuppence. I think you've got more hope than I have. I've got an uneasy feeling that there's something, something wrong with it all here. Something left over from the past. Oh, don't say it again, said Tommy. Don't say what again? Oh, just those two words. Tuppence dropped her voice. She got nearer to Tommy and spoke almost into his ear. Mary Jordan? Well, yes. That was in my mind. And in my mind, too, I expect. But I mean, what can anything then have to do with nowadays? What can the past matter? said Tuppence. It oughtn't to have anything to do with now. The past oughtn't to have anything to do with the present. Is that what you mean? But it does, said Tommy. It does in queer ways that one doesn't think of. I mean that one doesn't think would ever happen. A lot of things you mean... Happened because of what there was in the past? Yes. It's a sort of long chain, the sort of thing you have with, with gaps and then with beads on it from time to time. Jane Finn and all that. Like Jane Finn in our adventures when we were young because we wanted adventures. And we had them, said Tommy. Sometimes I look back on it and wonder how we got out of it alive. And then other things, you know, when we went into partnership, 
and we pretended to be detective agents. Oh, that was fun, said Tommy. Do you remember? No, said Tuppence. I'm not going to remember. I'm not anxious to go back into thinking of the past, except, well, perhaps, except as a stepping stone, as you might say. No. Well, anyway, that gave us practice, didn't it? And then we had the next bit. Ah, said Tommy. Mrs. Blenkinsop, eh? Tuppence laughed. Yes, Mrs. Blenkinsop. I'll never forget when I came into that room and saw you sitting there. How you had the nerve, Tuppence, to do what you did, move that wardrobe or whatever it was, and listen in to me and Mr. What's-his-name talking. And then, and then Mrs. Blenkinsop, said Tuppence. She laughed too. N or M and goosey-goosey gander. But you don't, Tommy hesitated. You don't believe that all those were what you call stepping stones to this. Well, they are in a way, said Tuppence. I mean, I don't suppose that Mr. Robinson would have said what he did to you if he hadn't had a lot of those things in his mind. Me, for one of them. Oh, very much you, for one of them. But now, said Tuppence, this makes it all different. This, I mean, Isaac, dead, coshed on the head, just inside our garden gate. Well, you don't think that's connected with... Well, one can't help thinking it might be, said Tuppence. That's what I mean. We're not just investigating a sort of detective mystery anymore. Finding out, I mean, about the past and why somebody died in the past and things like that. It's become personal. Quite personal, I think. I mean, poor old Isaac being dead. He was a very old man, and possibly that had something to do with it. Not after listening to the medical evidence this morning. Someone wanted to kill him. What for? Why didn't they want to kill us, if it was anything to do with us? said Tommy. Well, perhaps they'll try that, too. Perhaps, you know, he could have told us something. Perhaps he was going to tell us something. Perhaps he even threatened somebody else that he was going to talk to us, say something he knew about the girl or one of the Parkinson's or, or this spying business in, in the 1914 war, the secrets that were being sold. And, and then, you see, he had to be silenced. But if we hadn't come to live here and ask questions and wanted to find out, it wouldn't have happened. Don't get so worked up. I am worked up, and I'm not doing anything for fun anymore. This isn't fun. We're doing something different now, Tommy. We're hunting down a killer. But who? Of course, we don't know yet, but we can find out. That's not in the past. That's now. That's something that happened. What, only six days ago? That's the present. It's here, and it's connected with us, and it's connected with this house, and we've got to find out, and we're going to find out. I don't know how, but we've got to go after all the clues and follow things up. I feel like a dog with my nose to the ground following a trail. I'll have to follow it here. You've got to be a hunting dog. Go round to different places. The way you're doing now, finding out about things. Getting your, whatever you call it, research done. There must be people who know things, not of their own knowledge, but what people have told them. Stories they've heard, rumours, gossip. But Tuppence, you can't really believe there's any chance of our... Oh, yes, I do, said Tuppence. I don't know how or in what way, but I believe that when you've got a real, convincing idea, something that you know is black and bad and evil, and hitting old Isaac on the head was black and evil. She stopped. We could change the name of the house again, said Tommy. What do you mean? Call it Swallow's Nest and not the Laurels? A flight of birds passed over their heads. Tuppence turned her head and looked back towards the garden gate. Swallow's Nest was once its name. What's the rest of that quotation? The one your researcher quoted? Poston of death, wasn't it? No, no, Poston of fate. Fate. 
That's like a comment on what has happened to Isaac. Lost in a fade. Our garden gate. Don't worry so much, Tuppence. I don't know why, said Tuppence. It's just a, a sort of idea that came into my mind. Tommy gave her a puzzled look and shook his head. Swallow's Nest is a nice name, really, said Tuppence. Or it could be. Perhaps it will some day. You have the most extraordinary ideas, Tuppence. Yet something singeth like a bird. That was how it ended. Perhaps all this will end that way. <laughs>